You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Hi, everybody. I'm Jackie Lewis, and this is Love, Period, a podcast about how we're going to love ourselves, love our posse, and love the world fiercely on the way to making our lives and the world better. Today, my guest is Wajahat Ali, or Waj. You know him from his comedy, from his TED Talk, from the places where he pens his amazing thoughts. What an incredible story he has to share about becoming who he is because he found self-love and how he turns that out to his family and to the world. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Wajahat Ali. Waj, how are you? I'm doing well. That was, that was, I was like, oh my gosh, there's going to be a test now. Yeah, really, because it's like <laughs> your full name. Do you, do your parents call you Wajahat? What do they Nobody call calls me uh, Wajahat. So the way you'd pronounce it, if you're South Asian, is Wajahat. And, Wajahat. and the reason why I got a little nervous is nobody calls me by my full name. They only call me by nobody. my full name once I've done something terrible. So Wajahat comes, Wajahat comes after you've been a bad Yeah, man. or I've done something bad, or I haven't called my mom, or uh, my wife has upset at me and I've lost my husband equity, which is, happens every day. Uh, and whenever I hear Wajahat, I'm like, huh, it's like with DEFCON 4. I'm like, what did I do wrong? I didn't do so it. Let's just, let's just go with Waj. It's so good to see you. Congrats <laughs> on the podcast. It's oh a matter of time. And I am so excited about it. This partnership with CAC, Father Richard is just the best guy. And this whole team at CAC are just amazing leaders. So it's good. And you're good. And if, if people hear children in the background, it's because um, we're recording this during lockdown. And I'm in my studio, which is my room. And my children, my three wildlings, just don't care. So they might just burst in the door with pressing life or death questions about toys which I will have to answer immediately, so I hope your uh, listeners can have some patience. We're ready for it. We can do it. Wash, what do they call you? What do your children call you? Uh, you know, I call my father Abu, but Abu didn't stick, so they call me Baba. Baba. Yeah. You know, so sweet. All three of them call me Baba, and uh, there is something just really uh, sweet about having three kids call you Baba. It's like you take on a different role. Once someone calls you Baba, it's just like there's a weight to it. Uh, that's yes, what I, you know. It's hefty, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, wow, I actually produce children. And uh, <laughs> I'm responsible for life. And God decided that like a guy like me should be responsible for giving birth to this world and continuing this thing called life in my lineage. And I'm now Baba. It's. I was thinking about that earlier. I'm like, you know, what would be on my tombstone? And I was like, what would I want to put in my tombstone? And don't worry, I'm not nihilistic for those of you who are listening. And I'm like, I'd be very just proud and honored if they just said, Abu Ibrahim wa... Nuseba wa Khadija, which means the father of Ibrahim, Nuseba, and Khadija. And that's that. I mean, that's that's a good life. Oh, watch. That's so beautiful. Your princess baby daughter had a tough uh, cancer scare. She had a very tough cancer scare. She, as of almost a year, because last week was the ringing the bell ceremony, she's now cancer free. So, for those of you who thankfully will never have to endure cancer in your family. Ringing the bell is what happens when um, you're officially cancer-free, so they ring the bell. And she's now one year cancer-free. She had stage four cancer when she was two years old, a couple of months before her third birthday. It spread all over her liver, and there was a spot they found in her lung. And they she needed a full liver transplant, and 
there were so many complications and chemo was delayed. And within two weeks, this beautiful girl had turned into just hollow bones. And they said that if you don't find a liver transplant, dot, dot, dot. So we found an anonymous liver donor who chose to be anonymous at the time. And then uh, he's now decided to reveal himself. His name is Sean Zahir. And he just read about what was happening with my daughter. And thankfully, he just happened to live in D.C. And he just happens to be Pakistani and Muslim. And he says, oh, O blood type. I'm O blood type. Maybe I'll go try out. For a girl he'd never met. He never met her. So a lot of people think, oh, this anonymous donor is a friend or a family friend. Random dude we have never met in my life. And the way God works, if you will, is his wife followed me on Twitter. Now, why did his wife follow me on Twitter? Because four years ago, I decided to take a speech at UNC. And she came and saw me and she really liked the speech and she followed me on Twitter ever since, but she never like reached out. And she was on sitting on the couch with him and he's a Luddite for a millennial. He's not into social media apps. And she was just reading out loud, oh, Wajahat Ali's daughter needs a liver a donor. They're asking for a call out. And he says, yo, g- give me the phone. And I did a thread and he's the one that actually touched the thread because she just read the first tweet. I did four tweets with more details. He goes, huh? 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 He goes, oh, I'm a blood type. I'll go try out. And she goes, you'll try out? She goes, yeah. And voila, lo and behold, literally when we need it most, a liver donor steps up. She gets a brand new liver. She does her post-transplant chemo and, you know, was really harrowing. But knock on wood, she she rings the bell. And, you know, during this pandemic, during this crisis, we always look at her and we say, you know what? Can't complain. We have a living miracle. So... I know people oh, are going gosh. through a lot, but like when, if you're, you know, because you sit there as a parent. And when I first found out I was in Vancouver, I was about to go on stage for a TED Talk. You know, I left my family for a TED Talk, which is like this big main stage TED Talk. And my whole TED Talk, if people want to see it, it's, it's the case for having kids. And I'm like, look at the irony here. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go make the case for having kids. And I'm sitting here in my hotel room and my wife is crying saying they just found spots all, all over my daughter's liver. And I was like, what do you mean? I just left the house two days ago. She goes, yeah, there's a bump in her stomach. Like there was a growth. I mean, in two days, I just played with her stomach. I played double on her stomach. What are you talking about? And then and then from April to January, things like that just, just turn on you on a dime. And, you know, I think you think it's dark and it's over and there's no hope. And then just like that, you see kindness and you see a miracle. And people, and yeah, on this, people always say, I need to see God. I need to hear God. I need God to talk to me. I need the burning bush to have a, a white man's voice. voice. I, I, need, I need Charlton Heston <laughs> in a beard <laughs> to come yeah. down the mountain, sure. even though he's an Egyptian. I need Charlton Heston as an Egyptian. Uh, <laughs> and, and then you're like, you know, but like, if you really, if you want to see these miracles, you see these miracles in everyday life, right? Like, look at the plot twists. Like, certain things had to have happened for him to take that phone and press it and then try out and live just close by. And somehow I was on CNN at that time, which made gave me a platform to give awareness. And then 500 people tried out, but 499 people didn't take. And the hospital was like, we've never had this many people try out and this many people fail. And lo and behold, this happened. And now you ask me a simple question. And I see my daughter right to my left with her dress, eating an ice cream. haagen is her favorite because she's a diva with her headband. So you asked me a simple question. Say, I gave you a long answer. Nuseba. Nuseba. What does it mean? It's an old school name. It is the name of a warrior princess. The reason why we chose it is Nuseba is a historical figure who supported the prophet when very few people did. She was known to rush into battle 
as men fell and ran away. And first she came to give water to the wounded soldiers. But then when the prophet himself fell off his horse, she's the one who carried the sword and took 12 wounds that scarred her for life. But she also is the woman who asked the prophet, how come all the verses are directed towards men? And then two days later, a revelation came that said, oh, ye who believe, believing men and women. And it made no differentiation between the men and women and said, whoever is most pious is most favored by God. So I remember I'm like, this was my first daughter. Ibrahim is my son. But I told Sarah, I'm like, I cannot have a damsel in distress. The world does not need damsels in distress. I need her to save me. So we wanted a warrior princess and she lived up to her name. That's that's why that's she's right. Nuseba. Oh my gosh. Well, praise be to Allah. <laughs> yeah, right. Alhamdulillah. All of the all of the magical, amazing, deeply lined up beautifulness that has her still with you wearing headbands and eating ice cream. This is a good thing. Hagendaz ice cream. <laughs> this is a good thing. Hagendaz. <laughs> good thing. No, the reason you why I said that is because she sent me <laughs> she sent me to get coffee ice cream and the Hagendaz was sold. I came back with Briars and I just tried to fool her. She licked it. She goes, Not this one. <laughs> So I'm like, all right, you survive cancer. You get to be a diva. I'll go get Oh my gosh, not this one. There is this incredible, in the, against the backdrop of all the things you and I know are happening in the world that we can mourn and complain about, and we will. This way that there is a spark in humankind mm. that knows how to love, that knows how to love each other, knows how to step up. I really believe that. Yeah, I do too. We lived it. We lived it. Yeah. 500 random strangers, people I've never met before, decided to step up for a two-year-old girl who needed a liver transplant. That shows you something, that even when you lose faith in humanity, I think we often sometimes do. We can. Look what's happening. Uh, You need reminders like that, that we all have the capacity for kindness and decency. Sometimes we just have to to be invited towards it or to it. Yeah. And people step up. That's right. This book that I've got coming out this year is called Fierce Love, talking about the, the love of self, the love of your posse, your family, friends, and the love in the world. And I think when you were sharing with the Auburn Senior Fellows that we all hang out with, mm. this story, if you didn't think that there's love in the world, you know, you know it now. Listeners, if you don't think there's love in the world, you know it now. You know it now. Wash, what do you teach your children about that? Your son is old enough to know what happened. Of course, your daughter lived it. What are the lessons you give them about like world love when you... You know, we, we made the choice, my wife and I, uh, Sarah and I made the choice to actually keep both of them informed as much as possible about what was happening. And children, you will be surprised, have are brilliant creatures, very intuitive, very empathetic. Even if they might not communicate it, they they have their own way of understanding what's happening. My daughter literally told me, she had just turned three, she still had cancer. She goes, Papa, this cancer, it's in my belly, right? And it's what killed that one woman we one time met, right? The cancer took her away. And I was like, oh my God. And she knew the entire procedure. She knew the medicine. She knew what was happening. She knew the NG tube. And my son, a sensitive boy, you can imagine his world got turned upside down. Mama's here, and next thing you know, Mama's gone in the hospital, and Nunu's gone, and Baba's the one taking him. You know, it was really, like, very tough for the first week or two, but we told them about what was happening. We we decided to not shield them from the horrors of the world, which is what a parent often does, because our genetic makeup is to protect our kids at all costs. But we thought if we invite them, 
and keep them aware and make them part of this journey and educate them and tell them what's happening. Maybe that will make them more appreciative. Uh, maybe it will make them more confident. Maybe it will calm them. And that's what happened. They, they were, like Ibrahim and Nuseba just knew what was happening every step of the way. Liver transplant, cancer. Why are we at the hospital? And then each time we were there, my wife and I independently made a point to say, look how lucky we are that we have healthcare and we're in the hospital. Look how lucky we are that these nurses love you. You know, Nuseba, your, your family originally comes from Pakistan, and sometimes people don't have these resources. In America, some people don't even have these resources. You know, we should be grateful. And so every day we were just grateful. Even during cancer, it's like, be grateful. Be grateful for the fact that you have a chance at life. Be grateful for the fact people are kind to you. Be grateful for the fact all these aunties and uncles, makeshift aunties and uncles, are checking in on you and giving you toys. Be grateful for the fact that you have a liver transplant. Be grateful for the fact that we were able to go to Ocean Beach during the elections because all these organizations are set up to give charity to help these kids, right? And so there was this type of, I think, acknowledgement of luck and gratitude and thankfulness that my wife and I had throughout the journey and that we have now that we have tried to instill in our kids and also, and now my son who's six, and like, you know, I was just so proud of him because he does his own prayers now, right? Oh. And yeah, you know, he just does it on his own. And so the lights went out two days ago, like everywhere in our block. And wow. it, and and Ibu was awake with me and he goes, Baba, and he just on his own, he goes, Baba, may Allah protect everyone and may Allah protect a mama who's with giving baby Khadija milk right now and may Allah just take care of everybody. And so the fact that my six-year-old kid on his own just like did this impromptu prayer, because he was a little bit worried and scared about the, the dark and he knew the entire block had run out of energy. The fact that he would say that prayer is, is just made me like, you know, it's like you get that moment as a parent, you're like, like moment of pride. Like maybe I haven't completely effed up. <laughs> you know? like, maybe my child won't be a serial killer and a freak and like go to therapy and be like, my, my, yeah, my parents messed me up. Yeah, you're like, so like maybe we spared that. Yeah. So like, I, and I think that, and I think there's something about these kids. Like I said, that they went through a traumatic experience yes. and they came out loving and joyful and kind. Yes. And I, I don't know if it was because of me and Sarah. I don't know if it was because of, uh, of how we tried to guide them. I don't know if it was because of the lessons or the wisdom, but I'm just grateful that that's how they came out. I am too, Wash. Love period will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. You are a Muslim from Pakistan? My family is originally from Pakistan. I was Pakistan? born and raised here. You were yes. born here? Uh, California. Uh, California? California. Yeah, NorCal. And, and America is not through being xenophobic. <laughs> America loves being xenophobic. What? America? Yeah, we, we, we don't want to let that go. So, like, talk about, talk about your own self. I mean, I know you some to know some of your journey, but talk about your own self about 
being Muslim in America and self-love. Like, mm. what's it been like? What's a journey? I mean, you are, you've got these babies you're raising and you are killing it for, from what I can see, you and Sarah, instilling in them hope and positive and agency and goodness. But it's not always that way, right? No. Yeah, I mean, so, it's, so it's, 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 I think it's an important question is how can you inculcate self-love and people might roll their eyes with then say, oh, that's some hallmark nonsense. But just think about it. Think about it if the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, the commander in chief, right? The figurative leader of the world, the representative that we sent out to the world, our ambassador, says, I think Islam hates us. And he, he gets to the White House by proposing a Muslim man and promoting conspiracy theories and attacking Mexicans and black people. And you have a rabid base that repeats it. And you have people in Congress who repeat it. And you have people on TV who repeat it. And if you are taught to hate yourself, to hate the shape of your nose, the, the color of your skin, your hair, when you don't see the American protagonist ever, ever look like you or your dad or your uncle. In fact, you see them portrayed as antagonists. If you see... In, all the time, in, in casually, in movies, in, in, in TV shows, and you never get the girl at the end. You kidnap the girl, right? You never, you're never a father who's normal. You, you're beating your kids. You're a savage. You're a beast. You're a problem that needs to be solved. And you get this repeatedly, this onslaught. Do you not then understand why so many people grow up hating themselves, the way they look, their culture, their language, their food, their parents? how they wish they were something, anything else. Maybe they could be white. Oh, if I was only white, blonder, more blue eyes, a little bit taller. If I ate meatloaf, then they'd love me. Then they'd love me. And the thing is, you search for that love out, out, outwardly. And, 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 and it's, a, it's like a futile search. It's, it's Sisyphean. Because that, that rock will always fall down because this pathway, the salvation, the, do, the, the, the door that opens is self-love. It's only when you truly love yourself, then you can step out confidently in the world. And it doesn't matter then that you're black or brown or blue. You're like, I love myself. And I have the capacity to not only love myself, but love others who look like me, and who don't look like me. And so I say all this because you can imagine that this 20-year worth of hazing of Muslims that happened after 9-11, where you're seen as a problem that needs a solution, where your loyalty and patriotism are treated as suspect due to the violent actions committed by people you've never met. And because of those 19 hijackers, now this entire thing called Islam, which has been around for 1,400 years, is now suspect. And you have to prove you are loyal and American and decent and modern and enlightened to a nameless judge or an executioner that holds you suspect. And it's not just the fringe, it's the president of the United States. And so I always told people that, you know, you're very lucky if resistance to Trump meant you just had to go protest. I said, for the rest of us, resistance literally means walking outside of the door with your head held up high, having pride, and teaching your children to love themselves. That's resistance. That's resistance. Because you are faced daily from an onslaught by a country that you love that doesn't love you back, right? And then makes you prove your loyalty despite every overture you've done in your life to prove that you're even more patriotic and America-holic than those overdosing on America. I mean, look at exactly. black people. They, they save this country from themselves each and every single time, and the country betrays them each and every single time. And, each and every single time. You know, time. my wife is South Asian. I'm South Asian. I'll, I'll share this conversation that we have often, you know, and, and, and forgive me if this is 
it might be offensive, but I say, if I were black, why would I love this country? I would, like, I say, you know what I say? I said, the testament to love, the testament to kindness is black America. Because I told my wife, I said, listen, if if America treated me the way they treat black people, I would want to kill every mother effer in this country. I would want to burn this ish down to the down ground. Down to the ground, yeah. And I had, and I would have every right. I would have every right. I said, you've betrayed us, you've mocked us, you've killed us, and you don't care. And you get angry about a vulgarian losing the election, and that rationalizes your temper tantrum that results in a violent insurrection that kills five people. But you won't even say Black Lives Matter when people are protesting the police killing black lives. That's the yep. difference. And that's that, why that's, you need self-love. Yep, that's right. And you know, earlier today, I was talking to my collegiate colleagues. There are five collegiate churches and we have a built-in team. And I, you know, how are you doing? How's the fire? You know, and I don't cry every day because I can't. But today I did. And I said, there's the fire. And then there's just watching American text, the text of America. Mm which will arrest some singing when Raphael Warnock was, was down in the rotunda singing with William Barber about healthcare. I was there that day too. We sang outside of McConnell's office. You, you know, I didn't get thrown around arrested, but I got arrested just for being black and singing outside of McConnell's office. But you can be white with your flag and your Nazi-ish, and you can just like move in the world with such anti-black racism and hatred and that's one horror, and the other is the everyday microaggressions, Waj, every single day. Every interaction. Every single day, every interaction, where people don't see you, won't talk to you, don't respect your authority, go around you, don't include you, do not imagine that you're smart, attribute all kinds of things to your blackness that has nothing to do with your humanity, every single day. Yeah, and every day you have- Every to, single day. And every day, in every boardroom, in every phone yes. call, Yes. You have to strategize. That's yeah, the, I think that's what white people don't realize is the nope. constant mental gymnastics that the rest of us have to engage in to make ourselves seem palatable for white rage to accept us. Right. right? Because so you can get your work done. Yeah, because at the end even, of the day, you just like want to get your work done. Like, I don't have time. I got three yeah, kids. Right, right. It's not, you know, it's like, will I then today, will I then today say to you, um, and use all my wonderful psychology and religion and, and use my I statements and say, when you X, it made me feel that you couldn't see me and that my, my blackness was an issue. And therefore, please don't do that again. Like, do you do that? Do you take time to do that? Or if you do that, will the whole thing become you're angry and black? Or will there be an explosion that you have to put back together? Yeah, because so you have to put them day, back. You, yeah, have to put their, you have to put their, have to yeah. put their fragility back together oh, and ensure yeah. them that they're not racist and they're good people yeah. and they're well-intentioned. And I then, know you didn't mean to do that. But, <laughs> I know you didn't right. mean to be racist and insult me and my family and my exactly. religion and my culture. But, but yet you did. But you, and so, yeah, I was, you know, and, and I, I try to now, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm trying more and more because I do think we're living in a moment. Yes. God knows how long this moment lasts. But analogies help. And I've seen a lot of white allies, like just yesterday, I did this tweet that took off. I have no idea why. Rick Wilson, who's a friend of mine, he, he swears a lot. Uh, you know, we have different <laughs> politics, he, but he's done good work with the Lincoln Project. And, you know, uh, he was on Joy Reid's show and he used language that trended, right? He called these people this funny stuff. And I just made a point. I said, I got nothing against Rick. He knows this, but I cannot imagine saying that on TV. Me and hmm. so many commentators of color 
if we said that, we'd immediately get fired. Yeah. And then I did a quick thread just giving examples. And yes. we have to police our anger and our emotions because we can't yes. keep it real. We can't mm. shoot from the hip. We mm. can't be politically incorrect. There's certain people who are privileged to show anger and profane rage, not us. Yes. Not and, I said, and I said, no. think about that. Think about why. And it's so interesting that, that that thread took off. And so many people said, I had never thought about that. That is huh. something as a white person I should think about. I also gave another example from two days ago. I said, this is wild. These angry whites who've taken over the Capitol and took selfies <laughs> committing crimes. I literally, when I go to airports and I have to pray, I'm a Muslim, we pray five times a day. Sometimes you have to pray. Even if the airport's empty, my terminal is empty. Before I pray, I just inform someone about what I'm doing. I say, hey, I'm going to go in the corner. I'm going to pray. I'm just being, I'm just praying. Is that okay? Is that cool with you guys? Is that wonderful? Great. Wonderful. And then I go pray. And then you kind of look over your shoulder. Why? It goes to your earlier point. I just don't want to deal with the hassle of some person tipping off security, then seeing this brown guy, <laughs> see something, say something, right? And, and, you know, <laughs> no. yeah. And then, you know, all these white folks were like, I never thought about that. That's a shame. I never thought about that. And you okay. know what they said? You said, and they said, I'm, I'm really sorry. I never thought about that. I, I, yeah. I know I never have to do that. And then you see these mother effers literally commit crimes and taking selfies of them committing yeah. crimes and then have the audacity to say, I'm just going to get on my plane and go back to Texas. Like if it was you and me, you know, if it was you and me and Raphael Wernock, who's our Auburn senior uh, fellow, who's now a senator, this is what we would do. We're like, okay, Jackie, I'm going to get us on signal. We're going to get on signal. It's going to be 30 minutes of the conversation going to end. This is what you're going to take the East Wing. Barbara's going to take the West, the West Wing. After that, I have a getaway car. All right. Wear masks. <laughs> We have to be so subversive. <laughs> like we have to plot it three months in advance. Exactly. These guys literally just got up, ate some Cheerios, put on a pajamas, <laughs> took out their phone, and decided to commit an insurrection, <laughs> and then fill themselves. Exactly, because it's okay. Isn't it so wild? Wait. It's wild. It's it, bl shocking. it blows my mind. Like white supremacy is so oblivious. Insane. To its but own self-destructiveness and rage and privilege. It's but, wild. But your babies, your babies, I have this whole chapter in the book uh, about raising babies to be to be good citizens and anti-racist. Your babies are being raised by you and Sarah. And I know you had a journey in your world, but you love yourself. You love yourself. How did you do that? It's a very, well, I appreciate that. I mean, do I? I hope, I hope so. It, it, it was a, like it. It was it a process. Like it. It, it was yeah. a process. And I think it's important for people to know. People see the confidence and, and, and you just said it, right? And so people might say, oh, he was born this way. Oh, how'd he do it? It's luck. No. And I think it's important. I've always tried to share this. The warts and the failures and the pain are very necessary to share because first it's the truth. And secondly, we could not have achieved this place or this state of being without going through that. And so I was that kid who was the awkward Muslim token brown kid. I was overweight before we had body positive imaging <laughs> and, and Dove soap commercials. This was the 80s where they just used to like mock the fat kid and used to call you fatty to your face. There was, yeah, there was no anti-bullying anything at that time. That was me. World War Three. Every day was World War Three. if you're fat. Anyone who grew up fat knows this. Fat, shy. Couldn't speak English until I was five because my parents didn't teach me English in this country. Muslim, South Asian, never looked like Chad or Chet or Travis, never got invited to the parties, always lusted for the high school girls who never looked in my direction. <laughs> uh, so shy that I used to sweat profusely when I was asked to address the class. 
And I remember in fifth grade, Ms. Peterson told us all to write a short story, a one-page short story. And I wrote a 10-page short story because I was, I was really creative and imaginative. I just mm-hmm. didn't share it. And she, for the first time ever, gave me an A++++ and commanded me to go share that story, read that story in front of my homeroom class. And I remember I begged her. I said, please, no, I don't want to. I'm fat. <laughs> she goes, do it. And, 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 I, and I read the story. And for the first time ever, that same homeroom that used to mock me was quiet. I had them. And they applauded. And then she told me to premiere the story for the upcoming fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade talent show with the upperclassmen. I'm like, please, no. She goes, I'm going to sign you up. (laughs) And I did it. And I had them. I had them. And that's when I kind of discovered a superpower. I'm like, once in a while, I could tell a good story. It just didn't happen overnight. I kept testing it, right? You just All you need sometimes is that little encouragement. You need someone to tell you that your story matters, that you have a voice, that you have a talent. That helps you along with the self-love and the work. I put in the work and the time. One thing led to another. A little bit more confidence. Tried out for the, the improv comedy troupe. Got rejected, got rejected, got rejected. My final year of high school, got in. Crushed it. College, shy, awkward. Still trying to figure out, like, desperately want to talk to a girl, don't know how to, sweat profusely when a girl talks to me, right? <laughs> But you you get thrust in a situation and you step up and you get more and more confidence. And then 9-11 happens. And 9-11 happens. I'm 20 years old. I'm a senior at UC Berkeley. I'm, I'm a student, a part of the student leadership group at the Muslim Student Association. And all of a sudden, as you know this, baptism by fire. You know, leaders aren't born. I think they're made. That's what's very, very important. Like people say, oh, I can't be like you. Just God gave you that talent. I'm like, no, no. There's a little bit of talent that talent was nurtured and invested in by some mentors and people who gave me encouragement. It was turned into a skill through hard work and time. And then there were crises that presented themselves that thrust me into a situation that I swear to God, I would not have done. Like literally God said, push, now you're in the ocean, learn how to swim. And and, and that was a moment where I had to represent. I was the cultural ambassador of 1.7 billion people in 1,400 years of Islamic civilization, and I could never mess up as a 20-year-old because if I messed up, not only would I be held as suspect, all of my quote-unquote people would be held as suspect as well. Mm. That's the post-9-11 climate. And through time, you keep doing it, doing it, doing it. And I remember the shift in me, and this is important in directly answering your question, was college, I was like 19. And I remember vividly, I said, I've spent my entire life trying to be cool, trying to be loved, trying to like, you know, be the guy in the movies. And I can't be that person. I can only be me. So I'm going to let the freak flag fly. (laughs) That's what I said. I'm going to own it. And if people like me, great. And if they don't like me, great, because this is too exhausting. I can't do this for the rest of my life. And fast, you know, and, and maybe in hindsight, it's it's not, it makes complete sense. But right when I did that mental switch, I became popular. Girls started liking me. I was more free. Uh, you stopped sweating. Yeah, I stopped sweating. <laughs> I got more confident. Like things started happening. Like when I when I had the confidence to tell my story and be my authentic self is when life started to open up. And each time that's been... Something that's really important for people who are listening, each time in my life when all of us are plagued with self-doubt and all of us have these moments where we feel stuck. But whenever I go back right to the basics, I'm like, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to be my best authentic self. I'm going to love myself. I'm going to be my best advocate. I'm going to say bismillah and just throw this energy out into the world. And people like it great. If they don't like it, that's okay. I've always succeeded. 
What's Bismillah? Uh, we begin in the name of Allah. We begin in the name of Allah. Waj, what do you know for sure about love? Oh, wow. What do I know for sure about love is that you should consider yourself a winner in life if you are lucky enough to experience it. If you are lucky enough to have loved and been in love, I believe you have won on this thing we survive called life. Hmm. I don't take, I, one thing I know for sure about love is you should never take it for granted. Mm-hmm. And that at the end of the day, love has the ability to make you do things that you thought were not possible. Mm. Uh, whether it's self-immolation or self-revelation, that's the power of love. So it's, it's one of those things where I feel like the one thing for sure I know about love is you should never, ever take its power for granted. Hmm. I mean that. You should never, ever, 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 ever underestimate it. And people joke about it and they laugh about it all the time. Like, they're like, oh, this is cheesy Hallmark stuff. And, you know, maybe because I'm older and I turned 40 and I have three kids and we're going through a pandemic, I'm much more tenderized. I would never talk like this or admit talking like this five years ago. Because, you know, <laughs> like you have that Spartan male... I still have that Spartan male stereotype in me. I never cry. Only if a crocodile <laughs> eats my leg, then maybe I will shed one tear. My wife just looks at me who like cries every day because she's like a spiritually, emotionally evolved, healthy human being. She's just like, what's wrong with you? Like, just cry for once. I'm like, never, never shall I cry. I keep everything inside. You just lock it up, put it in a jar, put it on a shelf. And then one day you just keel over and die at the age of 65. <laughs> it's like most men in America. <laughs> It's like death by a thousand cuts. <laughs> or, or, or the cup is like, you have a midlife crisis, you're like 55, you're a Spartan man, then you see a Hallmark commercial, and then you just start crying, and your kids are like, what's wrong with daddy? Is he having a heart attack? You're like, oh, I love my I father. the first time. <laughs> and the mom is like, just let him cry. Just need to let it come out. So, yeah, so that, that's why I feel, I really do. I, what I said about love right now is not just Hallmark stuff. I, I really mean that. I, I just feel like, I think about all these people right now who are dying by themselves in this pandemic. And I'm thinking about all these people, my friends who are single. And, you know, they have conver- I have conversation with them, and some of them are very happy, but some of them are like, I got the success, I got the money, I got my career, and this has made me reevaluate some life choices. I really wish I would have invested in love, right? So, and, and I look at my wife, you talk about miracles, I look at my family, despite all the challenges, I got a wife who I think likes me. And he got these three kids. Check in with her on that. Okay, yeah, yeah. And he got three kids. And, 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 you know, I love them and they love me. And at the end of the day, if, if like, today's my last day, man, I could, I could go out a winner. Wash, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. I'm sorry I talked so long. You don't talk long. You talk right. I appreciate you. <laughs> and and we're, we're praying for you and uh, the building and the community and for everything you guys do. So we're just really proud also of Reverend Warnock who is our Auburn Seminary senior Yay. fellow. He's one of our people. One of our people the- is literally going to the Senate from the state of I- Georgia. Yay. It's it's, <laughs> so a, you know, it's an amazing a black man and a Jewish man are going to the Senate from a state that was part of the Confederacy that decided to secede yeah. to to own slaves in the year of 2021. I just want to end on that note because there's so many horrors. Let's just take a moment to enjoy that. That's what love looks like. That right there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Ash. Love period is Corey Pig, Paul Swanson, Izzy Spitz, 
Sarah Palmer, Jenna Kuiper, Nicholas Kramer, and I'm Calista Brewster. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, which is located in the heart of New Mexico, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. We also have other podcasts you might like. You can find those wherever you like to listen by searching for Center for Action and Contemplation or visit us at cac.org to find out more about our other programs. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good.